0: You're listening to You Might Have a Point, a podcast about politics and related topics. The point of the show is to get to know more about what the guest believes and why, which is why we primarily discuss their own views and not my own. I believe in learning about a broad range of viewpoints so that even when you disagree with someone about a lot of things, you can still sometimes say, you know, you might have a point. It's been a while since I released an episode since I ended up taking a couple weeks off, but I plan to resume my regular schedule of releasing one episode a week on Sunday for at least the next while. You can find out more at youminehaveapoint.com. I am pleased to welcome to the podcast today, Angel Eduardo. He is a writer, musician, photographer, and graphic designer. He's been published in Aereo Magazine, the Center for Inquiry blog, and elsewhere. Angel, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So, the way I like to start off each episode is just asking you how would you describe yourself in terms of your ideology or worldview? uh
1: Wow, that's a hard question to start with. <laughs> yeah, I, st- I start I, off hard it, and it gets yeah. harder. <laughs> <laughs> All right well, no, I'm just kidding <clears throat> um, i i I think the the best way to describe how I actually behave and think is that I'm averse to joining any group. I'm kind mm-hmm. of the Groucho Marx type thing where I I wouldn't care to be a member of any club that would have me. Mm-hmm. Um, I consider myself a kind of ideological or intellectual nomad. I, I, I just kind of, I wander around, I find good ideas, things that I think are useful, smart, things that I could learn from, and then I just carry on. I try not to set up shop. I try not to, you know, settle because mm-hmm. pretty soon... Things start getting dicey and <clears throat> excuse sure. me things start getting dicey and uh complicated, and people start you know defending things that are indefensible or attacking people who don't deserve to be attacked in the name of the little patch of ground intellectual ground you've chosen as mm-hmm. your home uh, so I try to avoid that. I've been on the receiving end of that enough to mm-hmm. know that I don't like it. I don't want to reciprocate,
0: sure, so. I'm curious, do you think that that um, maybe stems in part from your background in music? Like, when I heard you talk, I thought, like, this sounds like a guy who also doesn't want to be labeled in terms of his genre. Um, Is there some overlap (laughs) there? Uh,
1: I think the principle definitely applies in all those cases. Yeah, I never liked, um, well, it was never possible to just relegate anything that I did musically into one genre it was never just metal or it was never just funk it was always some ridiculous fusion of stuff because it's just too it's too interesting there's too much there are too many things there are too many influences that i i can't help but fuse together so it's always some kind of fusion of you know the band i was in for a while we were called blue food and we were ostensibly a funk band but i mean we had heavy metal riffs and we called it, you know, "Stevie Wonder joins Led Zeppelin." That okay. was the kind of conceit. And you know we played in we played weird progressive type rock songs that were just they had great grooves, and you could kind of dance to them if you can count to seven. Um, so it was that sort of thing. <laughs> nice. um, but yeah, I, I find straight ahead genre stuff, musically speaking, you know, just straight metal or straight rock generally speaking i find it pretty boring it gets boring pretty quick you know i i got spoiled from the beginning i think the bands i was into when i first really got into rock music were bands like queen and led zeppelin and stuff so you know they're doing all kinds of stuff they're they're jumping wildly in genre and style and tone from song to song and album to album and i just kind of got used to that so you know i got bored when i heard something that was more straight ahead though there is some good stuff makes sense yeah.
0: So uh, I think maybe one of the more well-known piece, pieces you've written was in Aereo magazine um, titled I'm a Nobody. The Harper's Letter was for me. So could you explain a little bit about uh, why you wrote that and uh, the content of the essay? Sure.
1: Uh, well, the Harper's Letter came out sometime in July and it was signed by 150 mostly prominent signatories, um, you know, writers like Salman Rushdie, J.K. Rowling, Thomas Chatterton Williams, I think, was one of the spearheads of it, uh, Megan Daum, and um, many, many people who I hadn't heard about. Um, But in the basic premise of this, you know, three-paragraph letter that came out in Harper's Magazine was, you know, a kind of a restatement of a commitment to free speech, free expression and the free exchange of ideas. And maybe like a, a very anodyne, very, um, you know, run of the mill kind of above board plea for charity and sanity between, you know, people who disagree that, you know, disagreement doesn't necessarily mean that your interlocutor is evil and that maybe we can just kind of hash it out with, communication. Um that was the general thrust of it. And and as I mentioned, it's it was extremely, you know, very anodyne. Very um I couldn't I couldn't imagine it being controversial in any kind of way. But I was very wrong. You know, I read it and I retweeted it and I thought, okay, yeah, that's that's cool. That sounds great. And um there was an uproar. There was uh it it turned into this controversy. People were exploding in all these different ways, talking about it. And um, I found that conversation or those conversations incredibly frustrating, especially because there were many critiques of the signatories and of the letter itself. Some people thought it didn't go too far, far enough. Some people thought it went way too far. Some people thought it was, you know, these signatories, many of whom are, you know, very prominent people, very established people, and that they were basically just whinging about their the sudden loss of their free reign to say all the bigoted, horrible things they want to say without, you know, without consequence or at least without sufficient noise being brought against them. Um, and I I found that really disheartening, and I felt compelled to say something because the main thing about that letter that I thought was being missed was that these people were standing up for this right to speak, for this right to be wrong, for this right to say things that might challenge or offend or upset people because they can take it, right? So J.K. Rowling is, you know, she's got tons of money. She's got tons of clout. It's highly unlikely that anybody will be able to, you know, destroy her career or, Mm -hmm. you know, in any meaningful sense, right? She's too big. She's too big a fish. But somebody like me, if I were to say something, the wrong thing about, you know, the biological basis of sex, you know, the quote unquote, the wrong thing, or if I were to say the, have the wrong criticism about Black Lives Matter, or if I had the wrong point of view on Donald Trump, you know, I could lose my job. I could People could decide to come after me and they can decide to ruin my life over a tweet that maybe they misunderstood or maybe they willfully misinterpreted. And I didn't even mean the thing that they think I meant mm-hmm. or that they claim I meant. Um, and so I wrote this piece for Ariel just saying, you know, the, the whole point of the letter was that people like Steven Pinker and J.K. Rowling and Salman Rushdie and Cornell West, I mean, these people can handle the heat whereas I can't and so they're kind of serving as this front line to try to appeal to people's better instincts and more charitable um, you know perspectives so that people like me can speak and contribute to the marketplace of ideas without suffering these crazy consequences for you know just a perceived slight not even necessarily an actual one
0: cool makes sense Um, (laughs) yeah, and I definitely, I, I resonate with that. Um, just Mm -hmm. as someone who only very recently started, uh, you know, contributing my thoughts online publicly with my name attached. Um, I think it definitely is uh, a valuable thing that they did and that you did. Uh, so kudos to you for doing that. Um, so I'm, Curious, uh, that was published in July of 2020. It's March in 2021 now. Um, how do you feel like your kind of project of, uh, calling for good faith discourse has gone since then?
1: Uh, it's been interesting, you know? Um, but I think the, the thing that is most interesting is I was really afraid to write that piece and I was really worried that I was screwing my life up. You know, I just Hmm. got I had just recently gotten this great job, and it's the first job that I really feel is utilizing my skills. I, I feel really useful and productive at work. I feel like I'm doing good work, and it matters. And here I am. I'm compelled to write this thing for some reason. I can't get it out of my my system. I need to try and do something about this. And I could just be obliterating my entire, you know, all, all this, all this, um, this great situation that I. I worked so hard to get to this point. Um, But I did it anyway, and um, I felt compelled to. And the response was overwhelmingly positive, which is a great sign. And I think, you know, mostly in private, I was getting messages from people saying, thank you for writing that. Um, I feel the same way, but I'm afraid to speak up for all the reasons you mentioned. You know, I, I can't afford to lose my job. I have a family. You know, if I say the wrong thing, I could get fired. This place is you know, whatever their workplace is, they're talking about, you know, some people are, are suffering through Beverly. I mean, um, Robin D'Angelo type DEI training and all this mm-hmm. crazy stuff. And they feel isolated. They feel afraid to speak out about it. And they were at, at the very least, you know, heartened and inspired by, by my, um, possibly foolish desire to speak up anyway. Um, and so it turned out. it's turned out pretty good. It turned out okay for me. Uh, I got some interesting attention, and I I decided to try to keep keep going and continue this good faith experiment. Right. I mean, this is just the way that I like to engage. So it's not like I'm putting in um, a ton of effort to counteract my instincts or anything like that. I, I'm. I find hostility and anger and. Um, enmity really unpleasant. They're just unpleasant states of being for me. Mm-hmm. So I try to avoid them. Um, and I like giving people the benefit of the doubt because I've been on the other end of that. I know how terrible it is when someone is just completely misunderstanding you or misrepresenting you. Um, uh, and I never want to be someone who is doing that to somebody else. So I just have that, that trigger in my brain of doing that. And I think, contrary to what many people might think, Twitter is not that bad. Uh, it depends on how you curate your Twitter feed, how, who you end mm-hmm. up following and um, who who ends up following you. And, um, <clears throat> excuse me, um, I just, you know, I gravitated towards people who seem to be engaging honestly and people who I found interesting and intelligent and... Uh, and also people that I disagreed with, but people that I felt I could disagree with in good faith, people that I felt just had a different point of view that I could learn from. And so I actively sought this out, and I engaged with them from a perspective of curiosity, of, okay, let me just try to understand you. Let me ask you questions. Let me try to figure out what's going on. Um, And the result of that has been, you know, Twitter is a lot of fun for me. It's It's really interesting. Every day I log in there and I see The vast majority of what I see is interesting conversations, interesting dialogues happening between, you know, my mutuals and uh, the people that I follow. They're contributing interesting ideas or engaging with the topics of the day in a way that feels genuine. And it feels that, you know, this is a cohort of truly curious, truly good faith people. And uh, I got to say, it's been really, really nice.
0: Cool. Um. So I think generally um, the Harper's letter might be aimed more towards, um, I guess, leftist uh, orthodoxy, um, or at least it might have been perceived that way. Um, But I'm personally worried about the illiberalism on both the left and the right. So I'm wondering, like, uh, what do you see as the similarities and differences between the two?
1: Hmm. Well, you know, it's it's, uh, the horseshoe thing. The extremes seem so familiar. Um, and I encounter a lot of that. So I encountered it a lot, you know, before the election. I think things have kind of tamped down a little bit since then, since now it's, you know, kind of foregone. There's nothing we can do about, or there's nothing they can do about Biden being in office. It's just the way it is. And, um, But, you know, it's it's funny because I think, it depends on the circles that you run in, right? I don't mm-hmm. get a lot of you know maga, right wing loonies, really. I don't I don't see a lot of that stuff, um, and I don't really seek it out because I think that there's a, that particular brand, of right wing politics is pretty toxic, and there's not a lot I can get out of that, mm. right? But I'm willing to engage people who, who engage with me, um, at least to start. Um I mean, yeah, you know, it's it's hard. I think that it's it's more alarming when you feel like the you know, the call is coming from inside the house. Right? I mean, generally speaking, you know, I would I would end up on the left on most things, generally speaking. Um and I see not I, I don't see them as a greater threat, but I, I see them as an imminent threat at the moment certain ideas that are being perpetuated most mostly by the left at least this particular flavor of censoriousness and you know um, an attack on freedom of expression and a kind of wanting to micromanage everyone's thoughts Um, I find that really disconcerting and I find it really alarming so it it's generally the thing that I've been paying attention to the most I mean our institutions are kind of you know for the vast majority of them, we're talking about places where the left has free reign. They've kind of taken over. Um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? But we have things like the Smith College thing that's going on and also the New York Times, all the stuff that's going on there. It's all very alarming and it's all very left type issues. I mean, the thing about the thing about you know the right wing stuff right now is it's kind of easy to dismiss as ridiculous. Like the whole Trump thing to me was just a circus and it's a dangerous one, you know, we needed to pay attention to it, but it, it felt like a different kind of threat to me. And I worry, I worry a lot about, um, yeah, I worry a lot about, you know, sort of the my own side, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. uh, becoming a problem. Like I have to kind of watch my own back instead of facing forward.
0: Got it. Um, Yeah, it's Mm -hmm. curious for me. I guess I would describe myself as a moderate conservative. And so I have gotten pretty extreme comments from both sides. And I'm always (laughs) like, guys, uh, uh, it's not helping. Um, I, I do think there are some differences, though. I guess what strikes me is the intellectual um sophistication that some really bad ideas on the left have like you said Mm -hmm. i think liberals are overrepresented in academia and the media and it seems like there's a lot of a sort of seeming sophisticatedness sometimes to their ideas whereas like if someone's censorious on the right it's like you're on my team or you're not you know trump did nothing wrong the end (laughs) Um, what do you think
1: yeah no that that makes sense okay. yeah it, i guess yeah. i guess it's also just a familiarity right because mm-hmm. it's kind of been what it's been for a long time but this this overly censorious overly kind of you know this uh, this kind of left authoritarianism yeah. yeah uh is more new and, and i guess it's just more alarming for that reason because yeah i mean i've been dealing with you know, super conservative, super religious, super dogmatic, right-wing people forever, you know, just kind of been mocking them and mocking those ideas forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if anything, you know, my attitude about them has changed only in that I I feel more compassionate towards them. Like I kind of, I, I understand where they're coming from, even though I don't condone their conclusions. I don't condone, you know, many of the ideas, but I get that if I grew up where they grew up if I believed what they believed I would be indistinguishable from them and my perspective shifted in that way so I, I have less of a you know whereas maybe like 10 15 years ago I might have said you know these people don't care about others they don't care about their fellow man they're they're fundamentally selfish and you know they're they're dogmatic lunatics or whatever I might have said something something like that um, whereas now I say you know like these people believe nonsense and I would believe it too if I, if it were fed to me the way it was fed to them. And, you know, and also, you know, who knows if I'm wrong, I'm I'm wrong about a million things right now and I have no idea. So there's a little bit more humility to my perspective than when I was in my early twenties, maybe. Okay. Uh, I'm a little less strident.
0: So <laughs> I want to talk to you now about your, concluding sentence in that um uh, article in area because i think it was probably the only uh only thing i might disagree with which was cancel culture exists but together we can end it and um uh, you know it's i mean i think it's a noble aspiration i think i think we should fight against uh cancel culture and censoriousness but i mm. also think um as a conservative, one one of the things that Jonathan Hyde who is not a conservative, has said conservatives have right is that they're pessimistic about human nature, um, and so <laughs> I, I I think it's uh, you know the the liberal project, small L liberal, in terms of freedom of thought and conscious and of belief, is uh, going against a lot of natural human instinct, um, and yeah, I'm de- like, you know, I. on the one hand, I want to be optimistic, but I think for the foreseeable future, anyway, it's going to be a bumpy ride. What do you think?
1: Uh, I mean, I think it's been, it's been a bumpy ride forever. It's always been a bumpy ride. It will always be a bumpy ride, but that doesn't mean the ride hasn't gotten us anywhere. Mm. Uh, I mean, you know, here we are where we are benefiting greatly from all this technology and all this communication, all this, you know, we're reaping the benefits of of the society that our forefathers have wrought, you know, for good or for ill. Uh, there's plenty wrong. There's plenty of things that need fixing, but I'm with Steven Pinker. You know, things have progressively gotten better, even though there are definitely problems and there always have been, there always will be things we need to worry about, things we need to care about, things we need to fix. But the arc of... You know, human progress, moral progress has very steadily moved in one direction and not the other. So that I think, generally speaking, pessimism is is largely unfounded. It's only through the, you know, the availability heuristic that you can find, you know. Well, yeah, this terrible thing happened last week, so clearly human nature is, you know, we're all awful, but um you know, I think, I think that the fact that we're here, the fact that you and I can have this conversation, the fact that we don't have to worry sure. about looking over our shoulders and we can take this time to just have a conversation about ideas, that's a good sign. And I think the fact that, you know, even the fact that someone like Donald Trump ascended to the presidency and as dangerous as that was and as bad as that was and as you know, harmful as it, as it ended up being in so many ways it didn't completely destroy our institutions it didn't completely destroy our country like the fabric of our country is not is not just you know a pile of shredded fabric now like it's 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 pretty amazing actually i, I was impressed by how much our our institutions and our norms were able to hold despite his flagrant attempts to destroy so basically yeah. all of them yeah right so i don't know i think there's there's a lot of cause for optimism and there's a lot of cause for seeing that humans can do better than their instincts i mean there are a lot of instincts that we suppress or that we sublimate every day i mean you know most of us don't steal even if we're hungry right we're hungry and we're walking by a, a fruit stand we don't just take the apple because we decide you know I don't want to be someone who lives in a place where people just steal things like we we can kind of very quickly do that math and say, you know, that's not that's not the kind of world I want to live in where people just start taking what they want because we know where that gets us. Right. We've been there before. Um, I don't think people are even consciously thinking that way. They just kind of accept it. It's an it's a it's a thing that has become ingrained. There's an instinct of cooperation and that's cause for optimism, too. So, you know, the cancel culture thing. Uh, if I could change anything, I would probably just remove that line because I think the line before it is good enough to end the piece on. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but I do think that we can end it. You know, we can decide to be more charitable with each other. We can decide this is a bad way to go. Um, you know, if we, if we extrapolate from this point, it's going to be bad for everyone. So maybe we should rethink this. I think we can do that. And I think we've shown ourselves to be capable of of surpassing our our immediate gratification, our immediate instincts for self-preservation, and and recognize that the long game is a better game.
0: Okay. So I want to push back a little bit. I I mean, I think Mm -hmm. I agree with the general arc there um, of things having been improved, but I also think that, um, I don't know, maybe uh i forget who said it but like freedom is only one generation away from extinction like i think you're right we're having this conversation about ideas but um we need to continually advocate for these ideas um of uh, and so i guess one thing that i'm especially worried about is like i think you're right the norms and institutions did hold to a large extent but i think trump also chipped away at it um one thing i've been thinking about recently is just how unprecedented unprecedented it was for him to fire his attorney general and just replace him with someone who had advertised himself as being against the Mueller investigation. Um, Regardless of what you think about the Mueller investigation, I think, you know, things like that, um, things like the, you know, quote-unquote Muslim ban, which then became something else that just became normalized. I think there's a lot that, to my mind, was very un-American and unconservative um, Mm -hmm. that he got away with and there's a large, there's a considerable case to be made that he could win the primary again, um, in 2024 and, and Mitch McConnell has said that if he did, um, he would support him. So I don't know. I don't know.
1: Oh no. I mean, yeah, I'm with you about all that stuff. I, you Mm -hmm. know, I don't mean to minimize his damage, Mm -hmm. the damage that he did and that he may still do. Um, not at all. You know, I agree with you completely that it's the principles we have, the structures that we have, the norms that we uphold, we need to continually uphold them, continually, you know, reconnect with that impetus from the beginning of, you know, this is a this is a fragile thing. I think I think that's absolutely right. We are one generation away from extinction. Um, It's very possible we can we can completely destroy this thing tomorrow. We have to be careful with it. But I think largely, we all know this, and I think that when it really comes down to it, we we will rise up to that. Um, I'm confident about that because I think even though people complain and even though people have legitimate grievances and some grievances that are not legitimate, um, everyone values what we have here. I think the the reason for the grievances in the first place is because they recognize you know, where, what direction we want to go in. And they have, they have the ground to stand on in order to make that grievance. And I think everyone kind of implicitly accepts that and understands it. So yeah, no, I mean, definitely don't let your guard down. Definitely. uh, You know, we have to keep having these conversations. We have to keep minding our institutions and, you know, all the weaknesses in our norms and in our policies and in our institutions that Trump exposed, um, we should address those. We should do something about that. Uh, We should be careful how we address those things. But we definitely should because, you know, things like what you just mentioned and, you know, just pick any day of the Trump presidency and all the insane things he said and did, all of those things could have really blown up in our faces. And we're just kind of lucky that they didn't um in a way he was kind of a kind of a godsend because he may have alerted us to the possibility you know i just just imagine someone with his his exact same intentions charisma you know right um, but okay. but just imagine someone competent <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> just imagine you know like a, a real lex luthor um, so where it's not just, you know, this criminal mind and this completely self-absorbed perspective, but also, you know, cunning and high intelligence and just being able to, you know, the the way that Trump manipulated the system, seemingly just on pure instinct, is pretty scary. So now imagine somebody who has that instinct plus the ability to think ahead. Imagine Imagine somebody who could play chess except he has the exact same motivations as somebody like Trump. That's pretty dangerous. We should pay attention to that. We should use Trump as a kind of dress rehearsal or a dry run of how bad it can really get and do what we can to mitigate that.
0: All right, so now I'd look to go to another article you wrote, and this time on the blog for the Center for Inquiry, um, how to star man arguing from compassion. So uh, do you want to summarize the point you were making there?
1: Sure. Uh that that comes from a, you know, the desire for good faith, the desire for better communication and I I was inspired by a tweet that um someone I follow Wilfred Riley uh he he put it out on New Year's Eve. He said, you know, never never straw man, always steel man. And uh someone posted as a comment underneath that the lyrics to David Bowie's song Starman. Uh you know, there's a Starman waiting in the sky, he'd like to come and meet us, but he thinks He'll blow our minds and something clicked in my head and I thought, ah, that would be a great name for another term in that sequence, right? So just for those those of our, our listeners who are not as familiar, straw man is a fallacy in argument where you take a caricature of somebody's point and you argue against the caricature because it's easier to take down. Right, so you're not really addressing the person's argument; you're just kind of taking it, twisting it, and you know, fighting with this fake version of the of the person's argument. Um, the example that I use in the in the piece is about UBI, Universal Basic Income. So, if somebody says, you know, people are losing jobs due to automation, and you know, maybe we should consider something like UBI to mitigate, you know, the job loss, and you know, decouple that from you know, decouple earning a living from being able to live a good life. Uh, A straw man of that would be, you know, oh, so you just want people to sit around and collect free money, right? And that's a totally uncharitable translation of that argument, right? You're Mm -hmm. missing the point entirely and you're kind of, it's a cynical way of looking at it. Um, What you should do instead is steel man, right? Uh, Which is to, engage with the most charitable version of your opponent's argument the most robust version, the most honest, um, basically repeat their argument back to them in a way that they would agree with. Right. And if you can get them to say, you know what, that's actually even better than I would have put it
0: mm-hmm.
1: right. Because then, you know, first of all, that you're not wasting your time on a caricature, right? Cause sometimes you straw man by accident, but the more important thing is that you're ensuring to the other person that you're actually listening that you understand what what they're trying to say and you're actually going to engage with that so the conversation stays on the rails and it, it it's clear to both of you that you're being honest right so for the ubi the ubi example it would be okay i get what you mean you want you know you you recognize that people are losing their jobs due to automation so you want to find a way to decouple earning a living from living a safe fulfilled life, you know, because the job landscape is changing. You want to be able to mitigate that by um, finding another way to have people support themselves. So the person might say, yeah, that that's pretty much what I mean. Yeah. And you can go from there. But uh, the problem that I started to notice in the way that people engage is not only that people would have trouble steelmanning each other's arguments, they would strawman each other's arguments but they would also straw man each other so beyond caricaturing the argument they would be caricaturing whoever they're talking to right so they they would be super uncharitable about their interlocutor and they would kind of treat them you know you're this horrible human being all what you wanted to, is to destroy the world you want to ruin america or whatever um and so to starman my conception of it is, is that you would, you would steel man the argument and then you would go a further step where you would acknowledge the intentions behind that person's argument and how those intentions are good and how those intentions are geared towards making the world a better place. So it's based on an assumption, which I think is a very safe assumption, that most people, most of the time, want the world to be better than it is. They want to improve the world. And what we're really arguing about is the details, how we do that, right? The best way to do that, the most efficient way to do that, the most successful way to do that. Um, so to star man would be, you know, you steel man that argument about UBI. Okay, I get what you mean. You're trying to do this. You're trying to decouple earning a living from, um, you know, work so that people can move around more freely and the job market can change without too many people suffering unnecessarily and the reason you care about this so this is the starman portion of it you would say the reason you care about this is because you want people to live better freer more fulfilled lives right and you can recognize that the way the, the job landscape is going might lead people to suffering so you want to mitigate that because of course you care about people just like i do and the person might say will probably say yeah that's that's really my motivation i'm trying to help people. And when you do that, you're establishing common ground. You're establishing a mutual understanding. And you're eliminating this idea that you're talking to an enemy simply because you might have different ideas about, you know, economic policy. Um, So it's, you know, I, I write in the piece that it's kind of, it's a way of acknowledging common ground and building your disagreement on that common ground instead of a fault line. So it could, it's, it's a way of, you know, pausing for a moment, recognizing that you're communicating with a human being and that you have shared goals because most people do.
0: Cool. So would you say that, um, I guess I, I'm wondering how to start star manning and still manning relate. I, I think as I understand it, like star manning more has, has to do with acknowledging the intent behind the argument. Um, mm-hmm. do you think. One is harder to do than the other um, or that they're both equally hard or what?
1: I think, um, you know, I think that they're both really difficult for different reasons, but I think that one of them is more difficult because of how difficult the other is. And I think it kind of works both ways. Like it would be it would be much harder to steel man someone's argument if in the back of your head you have this idea that these are purely evil people trying to destroy what you hold near and
0: dear. Mm-hmm. Or that right? they're just stupid and misinformed to yeah.
1: you. Yeah, or that too. I mean, yeah. yeah, you're you're an idiot and you're going to ruin everything with your nonsense. Like if you have that in the back of your head, it's going to be really difficult for you to engage honestly with whatever they're arguing, right? Even, even if you disagree, like... It's gonna be really difficult for you to be charitable to the argument, right? Um, and so that's what that was the problem that I was seeing. And I think it is really difficult to to starman. I think that, you know, we're so primed and we're so incentivized to see anyone who disagrees with us as an enemy, as as, you know, inhuman as possible. Um, because it helps. It helps us hate them, it helps us reject them, it helps us push them back, it helps us you know, disengage with their argument, even if they make a good point. All of those things become easier when you consider, you know, oh, this person, this person is beneath me. This person is not an equal, right? We don't, we're not, we're not on moral, we're not on equal moral or ethical grounds. So I don't need to respect this person. I don't need to consider what they're saying. So you know, st- steel manning at that point becomes impossible. So I think star manning is a necessary component that maybe when um, I forget who, who came up with steel Manning, I'm not sure it might've been Daniel Dennett, but that's where I I heard it. anyway. Yeah. Yeah, That's where I heard it anyway. But I think uh, there was an assumption being made that um, when, when the conception of steel Manning came about, I think the assumption was, you know, because of course the person you're talking to is not a horrible bigot and is not an evil, Maniac, you know, or or a total ignoramus. Generally speaking, you're you're engaging with somebody you respect, or you know, or at least you don't think that they're a terrible person. But we can't really make that assumption anymore necessarily, um, or at least most people don't. So, so I, the the star manning thing just came about in that we're going to have to take this extra step. We're going to have to acknowledge it and make it explicit, so that we can establish out loud that. We're both aiming for the same things here. We both want the same things, and once we can get that out of the way, you know, um, then we can engage more freely. It's kind of like, uh, it's a rhetorical handshake, right? The whole point of a handshake is I'm extending my open hand to you, so you can see there's no weapon there, and you're doing the same, and we clasp them together as a sign of we're not enemies here. So the star manning thing is kind of that. It's it's a it's an extension of that sort of thing, saying. Look, I get your, I get what you want. You want what I want, right? We're trying to make America better. That's what that's what matters to us, right? Yeah, mm. cool. So now that we've established that, we're kind of brothers in arms. We're kind of, we're on the same team, but we just have different ideas. So now let's hash the ideas out without worrying that there's a knife behind your back that you're gonna try to stab me with. It's that sort of stuff.
0: Got it. Yeah. Mm. While you were speaking, I was thinking. One of the reasons that we might need to do that more is just because a lot of political discourse is online and especially when it's um, with a stranger or or maybe even when you're anonymous um, and when it's just text like there's there's a lot that is more difficult about having a civil conversation about contentious topics there than you know when you're in person um, so I'm wondering how much you contribute how much do you think that contributes to uh, the difficulty that we're having as a society
1: yeah definitely it's it, i think that's the main thing because uh, i'm not the first person to notice that people say people are willing to say things online and and treat people a certain way online that they would never be able to do if they were face to face and that's why i consider you know twitter and things like it to be the kind of boss level of discourse, it's like here we go, we've got a certain handicaps now, and we're gonna have to be really, really good at this if we want to make it work. Um, it's much easier to pick up on cues when you're in front of somebody. It's easier to pick up tone. It's easier to kind of glean intentions without, without being wrong about that. You know, it's there's a lot that's lost when you have to communicate online, but that doesn't mean it's impossible. It just means we have to. Be more careful. Um and so I think, yeah, something like star manning is is even more important because we don't have all those other cues. So we have to really work to make sure that we've got in our heads this is a human being on the other end of the line. This isn't just some abstraction. There's not just, you know, some thing. I'm not just typing into the ether. There's a person on the other end there. And you know, they have feelings and they have thoughts and intentions and so do I. So these things are going to clash and it might be difficult. So I have to be mindful. Um, There's a lot of conscious work that has to go into communicating effectively online because of just the nature of it that you pointed out. I think we're up to the task. I think that uh, we can do it. I'm trying to model it myself. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's been going okay. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, I think, you know, it's, we, we've we expanded in a kind of, in a similar way as, you know, humans have expanded before, you know, there was like the agricultural revolution, and then the industrial revolution. And these things were, were moments that allowed us to exponentially expand our our ability to communicate and our feeling of cooperation, our ability to cooperate, you know, we can now communicate across continents. And we can now communicate across oceans, and we can now, you know, communicate instantaneously, right, with people who live vastly different lives in, in vastly different places, where, you know, if we met in person, we would have so little in common at first that it would be difficult to even strike up a conversation. But now here we all are on the internet, trying to figure out how to communicate with each other about things that are happening all over the world. Um, so it's it requires us to be more responsible it requires us to put in more effort in order to do it right in order to get it right in order to prevent catastrophe because we can do a lot of damage with these sorts of tools it reminds me of the martin luther king quote about you know we have our our um scientific power has has exceeded our spiritual power you know we are we have guided missiles and misguided men And I think the internet is just another kind of scientific power. It's another kind of guided missile. So we have this extremely potent and powerful tool that we need to learn how to use properly. Um, And I think remembering that everyone you're interacting with is a human being is probably the number one most important thing that we need to keep in mind.
0: Cool. Yeah, um, I'm wondering of another aspect of it. Um, I only really started participating on Twitter a few months ago and I what annoys me more than anything else is the 280 character limit. Um, <laughs> and I'm used to like arguing on Reddit or sometimes on Facebook and like just that single difference to me, like when you're talking about big ideas and when there seems to be arguments over the definition of words um, especially, I think on the left, uh, it seems hard, and so I I've noticed myself just not even engaging when I disagree because I'm like, there are three words there, and I would ask need to ask you for all three of them in order for <laughs> to even understand what you mean. And I think I know what you mean. So I don't know. Have you run into that or, you know,
1: I, um, it might be that it might be the the writer in me now where I've gotten used. I I've been doing this exercise for. A long time now like more Mm -hmm. than 10 years where it's called a 100 word writing group where uh it's an email group so there's seven people each person gets a day of the week and once it kicks off basically every day you get a 100 word piece in your inbox and when it's your turn when it's your day you have to draw from the person before you some you know a word or phrase or the topic or some some inspiration from the person before you mm-hmm. and you write your own 100 words and it needs to be 100 words no more no less so this exact number and you have to try to you know come up with some concise story or a poem or something however it works so i've been doing that for a really long time it's a great way to sharpen your editing skills and uh you know work in this very restricted small space. And I, I found how, how much you can actually say in a small space. Mm -hmm. And so Twitter to me is kind of a, an extension of that. I think, you know, I do the threads. So every once in a while I'll, I'll, I'll have five or six tweets in a row trying to make a point. Um, and it can get messy, especially when you're going back and forth with a few people at the same time, the threads kind of keep expanding everything keeps branching off and it becomes impossible to and
0: then someone quote tweets or reply and i go crazy <laughs> <laughs> right yeah um, yeah and you yeah, know it yeah.
1: so it's it's not conducive to some more complicated conversation but there is a, a sense in which i think it reels you in where some whereas you know back in the day i would do this more i don't do it really at all anymore but on facebook you can just kind of write these little novels Right. in response, right? And the benefit to that of course is, you know, if you write your little essay and you think about it and you you work it out and you put it up there, you are maybe less likely to be misunderstood, but
0: mm-hmm.
1: you're also less likely to be read, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I think people yeah. are just going to their eyes are going to glaze over like, "Oh my god, I'm on Facebook and I see yeah. this guy's like 16 paragraph response."
0: Yeah. Um and, and also it, it, A lot of times, maybe it could be cut down to two paragraphs. There's that too. Yeah. So,
1: so that's another benefit of the 100 word thing. You start noticing, you know, I don't need that word here and you become very efficient with your language. Um, so Twitter is kind of like that. I like it for that reason, but also I think it just keeps you on point and on track a little bit, because if you write these long replies, first of all, you can get lost in yourself, just arguing all these things and bringing up other points. And whoever's responding to you can also get lost, or just neglect to respond to a key point that you put in the middle there somewhere, so it kind of forces you to do it maybe a tiny paragraph at a time, and once you get the hang of it, you know you're kind of just focusing on one step at a time, one one piece of the argument at a time, and it it's it really it depends on how you use it. But uh, for yeah. me, I, I find it—I find it kind of useful that people can't just go on and on and on.
0: Yeah, no, that's a good point. Great <laughs> point, actually. <laughs> but um, I definitely
1: take your point about it can get crazy. I've—I've I've been in those Twitter threads where, um, you know, three people have responded to my one tweet, but I wasn't done. I needed another tweet to clarify, mm-hmm. and they didn't catch that one. And the thread just keeps going based on the first one, and all this misunderstanding is going down. And then the other thing where two people start arguing with each other based on my thread and I keep getting those notifications. And it's like, I'll come back six hours later. And there's 200, 250 different responses. And I don't understand what's going on anymore. We're now we're talking about something totally different. So there are many ways in which it's not conducive to productive dialogue, but you know, it can be fun. (laughs) It's a fence.
0: Yeah. I mean, like uh, I'm a software engineer. And so there are trade-offs that you deal with like on the back end on the code that, isn't really close to what you see, but there are also trade-offs on the front end and the UI. And so I think that's true of all the platforms that we, uh, that we are using for good or for ill. Um, (laughs) right. It always ends up being
1: about how we use the tool, right?
0: Yep. Yep. So, um, yeah, you talked a little bit about being a writer. I'm curious, like, uh, do you find yourself mostly writing, about like politics or politics adjacent topics, or do you have other topics you like writing about or?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I'm working on a memoir. um, So that's just pure creative nonfiction. Um, But yeah, lately, especially since that, that that area piece about the Harper's letter, um, Mm -hmm. I just got pulled in this other direction where I'm just kind of trying to get my ideas down. Some of them are based on rumblings that I see happening on Twitter um, you know, the, what's going on in the zeitgeist and, you know, do I have any thoughts? Maybe I could contribute something of worth. And, you know, I'm also just passionate about communication and um, helping to improve dialogue. And so, you know, that's where the Star Manning piece came about. I have another piece that I wrote for uh, idealist.org where I work um, three tips for having difficult conversations. It's kind of a the, the prototype for the Star Manning piece, mm-hmm. sort of. Uh, yeah, and you know, it's just, I'm frustrated by the inability to communicate and so I I often get pulled in that direction and, uh, but I enjoy it. I mean, it'd be nice if some of the things that I think are super obvious, if everyone would just kind of get with the program and then we can move on to other stuff. But at the same time, you know, uh, the conversation is necessary and here we are, we have to we have to hash it out and I'm all for doing that. So, you know, I try to keep the poetry going and I try to keep the fiction going. But uh, lately it's been very much, um, you know, I've got a couple of gigs where I'm writing these pieces. People expect essays from me and I'm having a good time just exploring that stuff. I've had, you know, a stockpile of just essay ideas that i never got to before because i was busy doing something else and now i'm kind of busy doing this and not doing the other stuff and just kind of letting it letting it go and seeing where it happened where it leads me
0: cool yeah um yeah uh for some reason what you said reminded me of this uh essay in a new york times style section by the author of your fave is problematic um and she (laughs) Uh, explained why she made that account when she was a teenager, just calling out celebrities um, for doing things that she found problematic. And she said, I did it because no, none of the people in my life who had done bad things had been held held accountable. And I thought that was Mm. really insightful um, because I think a lot of times, you know, we, and sometimes very justifiably we project political arguments based on our own experience um and the ways in which um we've been hurt and so i think even you know like we've been talking a lot about cancel culture and like censoriousness and you know moral sanctimony i think recognizing that you know quite potentially a lot of times comes from a place of having been hurt personally by real issues that are related um can definitely help yeah uh, okay, so final question for you uh, is, can you tell me about a time that you heard an argument from someone you disagreed with and you thought, you know, you might have a point? <laughs> you know, it, it's, I've been thinking
1: about this question and part of the problem for me is that I tend to blow right past you might have a point mm-hmm. and go straight to, yeah, that's true. Um, <laughs> so maybe you, you could start another podcast called, you know what? Yeah, you're, that's true. Um,
0: <laughs> but, but clearly all of us can't be true in America. So like, <laughs> right. You gotta, I don't know. Yeah. You know, no, some, no, something where it's like you mostly disagreed, but agreed a little bit. I don't know.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, the thing that came to mind is just one of the first times that I recognized that happening. One of the first times that I was conscious of my mind was being changed in real time, and I and okay. I was able to, to notice it. Which is, you know, I was at a diner with my friends, you know, sometime late at night. This was years ago in high school, I think. And I'm eating a cheeseburger, <laughs> and we're talking about the death penalty Some for some reason. We just ended up talking about the death penalty. And I was like, oh no, I'm so against that. And uh, they're like, why? And I said, you know, because I think life is precious, and we shouldn't be killing people, right? And they're like, well, what do you mean by life is precious? Like, do you mean all life? And I'm like, yeah, all life. All life is beautiful. Like, all life is precious. As I take a bite of my cheeseburger. (laughs) And then they're like, well, what about the life of the cow that you're eating right now? And I literally just hadn't thought about it. And I thought to myself, oh, wow, well, that's true. And I just thought, okay, well, I guess it's more complicated. I actually... I realized in that moment that I hadn't actually thought about it. It was just an instinct that I was voicing,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and I hadn't actually put any thought into it at all until until I was cornered, and forced to think about it through this questioning. Um, and there were there were a lot of things like that. You know, I was one of those people who thought, you know, money is the root of all evil, right? But then you start getting people start asking you questions. Oh, what do you mean money is the root of all evil? Are you evil because you have money? Are you evil because you want it? Um, What's evil about it? You know, what about people who take their money and use it for good things? Uh, And all these questions are just complicated responses that I never, they never occurred to me. And I'm forced to say, you know what? Yeah, you know what? I haven't, I hadn't thought of that. (laughs) And so, yeah, but it becomes this thing where, you might have a point is like a a very small blip Mm
0: -hmm.
1: that we breeze, we breeze past very quickly and it heads to like, yeah, you know what? I don't know what I'm talking about. And uh, (laughs) it becomes something like that. But yeah, I think those are the most salient ones that I could think of. Um, Many of the other ones, more recent things, you know, like one of the most profound changes in my mind recently has been like the and this is a can of worms, but, um, once I wrapped my head around Sam Harris's argument against free will, once I understood it, hmm. I found it incontrovertible. I found it just, I mean, there's no logical way out of this. Um, it took me a while. I had to listen to him explain it 10 times. I had to read a bunch of stuff on it. I had to really, re- you know, let it spin around in my head. And I'm like, what, what is he talking about? What is? it, what does that mean? But then. At some point it clicked and I thought, wow, there's no way out of this. He definitely, like, he's definitely right. There's no way out of this thing. You know, I can't account for the thoughts that occurred to me. Like, they just kind of appeared in my mind. And I'm not in control of what appears and why it appears. So there's some fundamentally mysterious mechanism happening that I'm not conscious of. And in that sense, I'm not, I'm not really authoring my thoughts and therefore, I'm not authoring my actions. Uh, that was pretty profound. That was a big deal because it changed the way that I view morality. It changed the way that I view retributive justice. You know, so there, there we go with the death penalty again. I'm, I'm back to being against it
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> because I realize, you know, everyone is a product of their circumstances, and uh, in many ways, they're victims of their circumstances and requires us to be more compassionate and it kind of removes the justification for hatred. Um mm. so yeah, a lot of stuff. There there's a lot of moments where yeah. Yeah. throughout the day where I go you that, that might be you might have a point there, but you might be right. And then I just straight up go, yeah, you know what? That's true.
0: <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, that was a good list. Uh Angel Eduardo, thank you for coming on. You might have a point. Great. Thank you very much. That's all for today. If you have any feedback, please feel free to reach out. You can find my contact details in the show notes. Please also take a moment to rate and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and take care.